Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back. What's going on? Nothing. It's snowing here. We have six... Wait, oh, it, nothing. Wait. It's, snow, it's snowing. <laughs> it's snowing on Halloween. It's snowing on Halloween. Yes, there's a white, ghostly spectral carpet of snow all over the landscape here in Colorado. We got like five inches last night. Huh. So we will be trick-or-treating well bundled up. With Hogwarts robes over the coats. Okay. Nice. Nice. I hope you got the extra large. Tim, what, Tim, what about you? Are you also blanketed by snow? Uh, no. I am blanketed by the the garbage man who seems <laughs> to always arrive around the time that we start recording close reads. That huh. might tell you that they're on a schedule. Perhaps. More than more, we're on it, yes. <laughs> but yeah, maybe it's more like, yeah, we're on a schedule. So so that's just kind of made my morning. That's been really nice. And <laughs> Tim, are you also gonna go trick-or-treating tonight? I'm not gonna be trick-or-treating tonight. What if I my give God, you, my God kids will, but I will not. What if I give you like fifty bucks and tell you to just take a go around by yourself in a costume and just have someone video it or video people's responses to a grown man just showing up asking for candy? <laughs> I that might be kind of fun for <laughs> <laughs> it would be like be a, that could be something for Patreon listeners. Yeah, you you are an actor, so. I'm sure you could keep a straight face and. Um, I thought you were going to ask what I would go as if I had fifty dollars to spend. What would I go as? And that whiskey was priest, a obviously. challenge. Obviously, what the would, whiskey priest. What would you go as? Did I did I tell you guys about what my what I had what I did with the dress that my sister had when I was living at home several years ago? Didn't we talk about this on the air? Like several years ago, like. 35 years ago? Or yeah, like- right. <laughs> yeah, it was about that long ago. I <laughs> I feel like I've mentioned this, but I'll say it again because it's, I think, I a funny story. I genuinely have no idea what the time frame is. <laughs> I, I was still living at home. I had moved home after college. My sister was still at college. And a bunch of friends of mine got invited to go to this party. So I didn't have a costume. I wasn't going to spend money on a costume. So I just started raiding everyone's closet. So my sister had this kind of, she had spent some time in Russia on a study abroad program. And she came home with this kind of folk dress. It was really beautiful, but it was also not, um, it was just a unique kind of construction. So it was this burg, like wine red, we had these tassels down the side. And I got, this is so terrible. Uh, I got this huge sombrero. And I got this belt from my mom, like one of those triple wide belts and some boots and something like they're else. They're probably not called triple wide. They're probably not <laughs> called triple wide. So I go to this party in this getup and I had a strategy. I didn't really have like a name for who I was, but I had a strategy. And so I would go and people would say, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. What's your, what is your costume? And I'd say, why don't you guess? Why don't you guess what it is? And they'd be like, I don't know. It's I don't. You look like a Guatemalan 
freedom fighter. And then I'd say, that's exactly who I am. And then I'd go to the next person and they'd say, I'd say, you know, who do you think I am? And they'd say, you look like some, I don't know. You look like someone from um, Mexico who, you know, collects beetles and puts them in a, you know, some sort of trap. And I'd say, that's exactly who I am. And so throughout the course of the party, I would just let people say who I was and whatever they said, I would say like, yeah, that's who I am. That's like a close reads episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what I saw. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. (laughs) We, 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 I don't know. We disagree sometimes. No one, it was just a weird party to go to because at the end, everyone I had 50 different interpretations of what my costume was. That's amazing. But to me though, what you you're bearing the lead because to me, the lead is that you were invited to a party. I know. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations. That's, a That's really sweet. That yeah. must've been a good day. Like, did Graham plant that <laughs> joke for you, David? That sounds like something that Graham it, would say. It does sound, to we me. are, we are quite good friends. So maybe I know. You oh. become what you behold. Well, speaking of yeah. parties, we should probably go ahead and talk about the power and the glory here on Close Reads. It's a pretty um, happening, pretty happy episode. It's kind of like a party, this reading. Yeah. This yeah, yeah, well, Close Reads is always a party. Right. We are here to talk about part three, part two. I get all these parts confused because I, I very it, I very poorly planned this one. It's part two, chapter three, part, <laughs> part two, chapter four, and then part three, chapter one. And... It wasn't, I didn't accidentally plan it this way. I kind of did it on purpose, but then at the same time, getting all the, all the names in my head was really confusing. So note to self, be cleaner with your, uh, with your uh, book dividing. Um, I did notice though, that it felt like chapter four of part two could have been a new part. Did you guys right. feel that way? Or did you, did it feel in keeping with the rest of part two? the first three chapters. I think it's very different, a very different change in tone. Uh, And I liked that for the reading this week, actually, as I was reading last night, I thought to myself, I love that we're reading these two chapters juxtaposed next to each other because there's such a difference in tone and such an abrupt shift. But at the same time that, that I think, that juxtaposition really highlights some of the main themes of the story and was just a kind of a jarring and interesting uh, way to read the novel. So I, I think it's cool. I'm excited to discuss that tone shift. Well, what about we talked to- last week that it was that it felt like we had hit this midpoint in the novel mm-hmm. where, yeah, something definitely changed inside the heart of the whiskey priest. And yeah, it's funny because it seems to me like if we could plot the book ourselves, I might make chapter, I might make part three begin just before the prison scene um, Hmm. and carry on through his escape. I don't know though. Yeah, that's actually a fun exercise. I mean, I don't want to mess with Graham Greene's. He made, he made choices. Yeah, that would be a fun exercise. Um, I don't know that just because authors make choices means that we shouldn't question them. <laughs> um, I mean, look at Shakespeare. <laughs> um, 
Do you find so you we talked about the idea that there seemed to be some some sort of a transformation going on in in the reading that we discussed last week, and in some ways that it feels like, despite the fact that it really only takes place around the middle of the book, maybe a little past the middle, um, does, it feels like we're building towards some sort of resolution. But in chapter four of part two, does it feel to you like that resolution, we keep building to that? Does it feel like it plateaus? Does it feel like this kind of subverts traditional um, narrative structure in, in some ways? Or do you feel like he reverts back? I mean, where does, where do you, how do you feel about that? Hmm. I, I think the last one, I think that the question of subverting the traditional narrative structure, this is uh, and in the first episode, we we the three of us talked about this being a very sad book. And I think that here's this particular part two, chapter four, is um, in some ways where I feel the sadness very, very deeply because it um, that prison scene is such a such an internal shift for the priest. What we discussed last week, and so you'd expect kind of the narrative of his life to reflect some kind of upward trajectory. And instead mm-hmm. it seems to go just way further down than this whole story has, has been yet here. And yeah. so down that, in what? Like down where? Uh, into just this contemplation of death and loss uh, and the rains coming. And I would just, this, that part two, chapter four is a very deep, has a very deep, sadness in it with the boy yes he got shot and all that yes and the empty banana plantation there's just this contemplation of death and loss and and so i think there's a little bit in the reader at least in me i don't want to speak for y'all that of like but i thought something good might happen now Mm. hmm because um, of the change, yeah, because right. of the change that happens internally to the whiskey priest. Yes. Hey, with a new outlook on life, you guys, new things will happen if we can um, right. see the optimism of the future. Right. And it'll build towards some sort of resolution. He'll, his transformation will lead to him right. taking some agency that will ultimately lead towards the resolution of the book. Is that kind of what you're kind of? I think saying? that is what I'm saying. But it, that, so the question of, he kind of gave those three options. And I said that last one, it does feel subversive. But if you look at, again, the, the pattern, which is happening here, it makes a lot of sense because after Gethsemane comes death, right? Yeah. Comes betrayal and death. And so in that sense, it's not subversive, it's consistent, but at least in the, in the mind of the reader, there's kind of an expectation of like, can something happen at least internally to the priest? Maybe he just feels more hopeful. That would be enough. But instead he's just kind of like in this depth of sadness and everything gets getting worse. Tim, do you, does, does, the, does the chapter feel more sad to you? Like, does it feel like this, the, a culmination of the sadness for you? Or did you feel, did you come off chapter three? Uh, well, how did you, you could just answer that. How, <laughs> Yeah, it's really, it's sad. And I would say that the reason it's so sad is it feels so lonely. I mean, even when he's with the Indian woman, there's each of them is kind of locked into their own language. They can't really communicate. Um, The boy finding the boy in the middle of the maze is so heartbreaking. Um, 
and, and okay, it's heartbreaking, but I felt like we were being set up for um, the Elijah with the widow scene. Did you guys feel huh. that from the Old huh. Testament? Um, that Elijah goes and he stays with this widow who feeds him and um, her boy dies and Elijah raises him from the dead. Hmm. And it, boy, it sure felt like that. The boy is buried under maize. I mean, it seems like it was a really clear allusion to some sort of resurrection, but we don't see anything hopeful come from that. Like we, the boy is laid at the foot of these crosses in the middle of the jungle. Um, it begins to rain. The mother seems like she's now done her duty and is now condemned to just fade out in some way. And there's no, there's no dawn. Hmm. It's, it's, so it didn't feel like the Elijah scene with the widow. Right. I didn't put that together, but you saying that, I see that really clearly. That's, that's really good, Tim. I have a question about a scene before um, the widow and the boy. I am not insightful enough to know what to do with the scene with the dog. Hmm. I, I would love to hear what you guys thought about that. So just to recap it for the readers, the, um, <laughs> the whiskey priest ret- goes to this little village that he has been to before. Completely abandoned. Um, he's starving. He's nauseated that he, because he's so hungry. He sees this dog that's just skin and bones, and the dog has procured a bone with some raw meat on it. And the whiskey priest kind of <laughs> argues with the dog about it. Eventually, gets the bone from the dog, eats the meat, and gives the bone back to the dog. And end of scene. Then he meets this native woman whose son has been buried in the maze and it goes on. And I keep waiting for, there's gotta be a reason that scene with the dog was in there, but I, I have not, I don't see it. I don't know where, what, what its purpose was. Mm-hmm. Help me close readers. Help me. <laughs> I was going to, you're my only hope. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that too. So Tim, can you solve oh, it's that all on me? you, Heidi? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, you know, it's certainly uh, mirroring the scenes with the boys, like even the way the, the the plot sort of plays out structurally, it's mirroring what happens with the mother and the boy. I mean, even the, even the question of the food where he eats the sugar that was left for the boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, and he, I think he, I think Graham Greene even compares the boy to an animal who wants who wants the food i think maybe it calls back into the priest's mind this particular dog but yeah heidi talk about the talk about the dog um well i i looked up several sources on this this week um what what do other critics think about the dog and got several different answers which reminded me of one of david uh your daily poem this week about the little ghost that the St. Vincent Millay poem mm-hmm. and how you encouraged us. I think just so rightly, I loved, I loved what you said and on, on that episode about 
you know, all the speculation that these critics have on what the, you know, what the ghost represents, who the ghost is, uh, and what if we just let that be, let it be significant without trying to pin it down or reduce it to meaning one certain thing. Uh, and, and I think that that definitely applies to the dog. That doesn't always apply. Sometimes a symbol is just a symbol and it just means that one thing and you have to just accept that. <laughs> but a lot of times it could be, you could have a wider interpretation. I think you could make the case that the dog represents several different things. It could be the priest himself. It could be the church. It could be the country. It could be the family that lived on the banana plantation, the fellows family. It could be death itself. Like there are these contemplations about what the dog represents, but I think what we have is an animal who is intended to be something and has been broken. And that is consistent with the whole theme of the novel, which makes it, I think, less of symbolic of one certain thing than more another aspect of the novel's contemplation of brokenness and suffering and death and hunger um, and longing. Hmm. So I'd be careful about reducing it as readers and more able to just see it in the context of the whole novel as just yet another broken wounded creature tim is that unsatisfying i'm thinking about it well <laughs> i imagine i don't think i can say it's i don't think i can call it unsatisfying um if i don't have a better answer and i don't have a better answer i mean it it plainly fits within the narrative as Heidi just said, of suffering and impoverishment and pain. Um, and it might just, it, perhaps it's just best suited to stand as um, a part of the narrative with, with and then symbolic experience of what's happening is either so obscure as to not render meaning, or maybe I'm just reaching for something that just isn't there. Right. I think that something's well, there is that Graham Greene has been so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Graham Greene has been so deliberate with, um, he's been so deliberate in crafting the narrative. It seems unlikely to me that he was, was not deliberate symbolically with this aspect right. of the book. I do agree with that for sure. I just don't know that it has to be symbolic of any one like it, yeah, it yeah. represents the priest's animal nature or it. Yeah. Know, um, and it also could, we also can't completely rule out the possibility that it's some, there's some kind of plot significance to it that will come back again. Yes, right. Is the only, the last living creature at, that we know of that we've seen at the banana plantation here where the fellows lived. So the, he comes back and everybody's gone. There's a mystery there, but mm -hmm. there's this dog with a broken back. So mm -hmm. That is likely also to have something, you know, he, he put that dog there for a reason, not. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're getting at the, we're getting at some central questions of, I, I don't know what the word is, the study of how we read. Right. Um, like at the core of just, literary literary scholarship of 
I don't know what literati. <laughs> um, right. And like how we, how we approach things like this. Um, and I think we, we largely, I don't know if this is a, and because of the enlightenment or something, I don't know, but we are, we are, <laughs> we are, we have this instinct, this need for things to mean, to correlate mm-hmm. to specific meanings. I mean, that's something that's the mind. I mean, that's just the human, that's just human nature. Uh, so I don't mean to suggest that it's just, just the, um, the, the enlightenment, but you know, human nature is trying to take, we're trying to take images and, and, and reconcile, what they could, what they could mean and how we can interpret them and how they can help us understand things. So that I don't think anything wrong mm-hmm. with that, but at the same time, like, um, we, there's, there's a sort of modern contemporary instinct, like look at the way poetry is, is taught, right? It's taught that if there's an image here, it, it has to represent something. It has to mean something. It has to, um, yeah. be able to inform us about what's going on in the poem or what the poem means. But then you look at something like what Wendell Berry wrote at the beginning of Jaber Crow, or you, well, you look at what's at the beginning of, of um, Huckleberry Finn, what Mark Twain wrote, that kind of epithet at the beginning. Most writers, I would think, are very rarely looking at it in such a scientific way where they're trying to say, I'm trying to create an image that represents this because, and it correlates to, to this idea. Most of the time, something like this, I, I believe, is... Um, it's there's there's mood and there's tone and there's it's a poetic there's a poetic approach going on here um and and the idea is the the nature of the thing itself the nature of the image and the and more importantly the nature of the scene the action taking place is poetic because it can mean more than one thing um yeah if nothing else it's it's um man there's mary oliver has this line in her book rules for the dance which is subtitled a handbook for writing and reading metrical verse. But she has this line in there that I was reading recently. Um, I think she's talking about frost actually. And she's talking about how, like, I think she's talking about stopping in the woods on a snow evening. And she's like, there's no, this doesn't mean Mm. it's not meant to mean anything. He's not trying to create some sort of huge analogy for something. What he's doing is he is precisely describing something and because he's precisely describing something and he has a poetic vision for what that description is and 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 the universality of that it takes on meaning that can that that then means something to each of us and so i think a truly poetic image um like this dog one and i'm rambling now um can be um can be useful in that it it opens the world of this book up for us one step or yes. um, one step more one it, it digs it digs the pit for us a little bit more deeply might be a more apt metaphor given the nature of this book but i don't <laughs> i don't think it necessarily has to mean one thing so much as it creates tone and mood and brings us one step deeper and it creates within us within our emotions within our imaginations a deeper sense a, a deeper sense of what the of what the book is about without even having to express what the book is about does that make sense yeah yes does make sense. Well, and it echoes something that that is particularly appropriate for this book with its sacramental vision of the world, something that Jamie Smith said in Desiring the Kingdom when he's talking about, uh, he's talking about liturgy in the church. And he says, we mustn't forget that it, that the church doesn't just mean something, what we do in church doesn't just mean something, it does something. Mm-hmm. Right. It isn't just that it represents, it's right. that it acts upon us. 
right. and does something, accomplishes something that if we didn't participate in it, we wouldn't receive. And I think that that mm. goes really to what you're saying, David, that whether it's the dog or whether it's the snow or whatever, that those that in real life and in literature, those things act upon us in a way that accomplishes something in our inner life. You know, obviously not as deeply meaningful as the liturgy of the church or the sacraments, but also it, but meaningful nonetheless. So we need that mongrel bitch who is snapping and snarling for life in the world of this story. Right. And Mm. it's, it's, um, it's offering, man, I don't know what the word is because I'm not that good of a poet, but it offers food, if you will, for the imagination. It offers the, it offers, it's the connection point between, um, our imagination and the eternal ideas that are being ex- the transcendent ideas that are being expressed in the work. Um, yes. And so images like this do that for us in a way that's, I mean, we're still talking about this, this scene where all that happened was this guy looked at this dog who wa- was following him around and like they, they sort of almost fought over food and he, and right. then, you know, like not much happened there, but the image itself is the the lingering thing, right? So the thing that's lingered in our imaginations and the fact that it's difficult and we can't solve it is probably evidence that it's um um well done <laughs> yeah that it's doing something if yes. we could name it precisely then he screwed it up i think <laughs> right but but there are other times where we can name things precisely and it's it's both very satisfying and we also right give credit to the author right i mean I am very content to wait until the end of the story and then reflect back on this sure. in the hopes that it might be a more powerful event than the story. And maybe it won't be in which case I'll, I'll be, I don't, it won't diminish the power of the scene for me. Um, but I think, I don't know. I think we do both. We ought to do both when, when an author earns enough credit with us that we can say, um, this seems like this, this seems like the sort of thing that ought to be designed as a symbol. Um, when, a, when an author has earned enough credit with us, we can say, but I'm going to hold off. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not, when I, when I can't see it, I'm not going to chalk it up as an error. I remember David, you've said something very similar to this and I concur. Um, when we don't feel like we're in the hands of a strong author and we encounter something like this, I tend to look at it as sloppiness. And I think uh, I'd be right. right in looking at it as sloppiness. I think we had this discussion um, Can, with Flannery O'Connor, David, because she's so precise mm-hmm. with her narratives. She, mm-hmm. Every sentence has power and meaning behind it. And when we meet something that doesn't quite correspond, is not germane to the rest of the story, we're like, wait, it should be. But rather than chalk it up to sloppiness, let's wait and see if we can discern something deeper that we just haven't seen yet. The error is with the reader. The error is presumably not with the author. Right. No, I, I so, okay. I, there, there is a degree to which also we, we should still be free to look at what's there, right? We still make observations about what's there and that can, it can help us um, connect our imaginations like 
two things we've had in our experience or, or echoes of other books or whatever, right? So it's not that like, for example, this is a dog that's maimed, right? It's like a half a thing. It's like the half cast. So it's going to echo other things within the book and also other things, you know, within our own imaginations, things that we've been thinking about at other points in our lives. So I don't think that we should diminish the possibility that it can mean, that can actually mean something. I'm not saying that it doesn't mean nothing, that it's just there, um, to, to sort of set, set a mood or offer some sensory detail. Does that make sense? Does that like, yes. I think there's gonna be a balance between yeah. off, off what I'm saying. So I, I'm, I'm trying to agree with you, I guess here. Right. Well, I think that's true. And Flannery O'Connor is a really great example of that. You know, if you're reading good country people and you have the wooden leg of the professor, or, right? Like that actually yeah. just is a symbol of, well, a of the girl, thing. of the girl, of the girl. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, doesn't she have a PhD? She has a PhD. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. She's yeah. not a professor. Well, yeah, she has yeah. A She's got a, yeah. She went, yeah. Yes, right. which is important because it has to be, that that has to be connected to the leg, right? So, which I, I'm not trying to get sidetracked in talking about Flannery O'Connor, but there is an actual meaning for that symbol that if you don't know that, this whole story doesn't make sense. Well, yeah. but okay, so, but here, here's where I would contend. I have, I have a contention with what you just said. You said there is an actual meaning for the symbol. That yes, I, I, I disagree with the way you express that. And okay. uh, I'm, How not would trying, you, I'm not trying to be combative, right. by the way. Um, no, this is, this is a discussion. I would like it. <laughs> so I think, I think we're generally, we generally agree, but I think that there's a, the way we express it is really important. Obviously. I don't That's think true. that there is a, say, say what you said again. You said that there is I, a meaning for the symbol. I think there's an actual meaning. I think I said there's an actual meaning for that symbol. It means a certain thing. Right. Okay. So here's what I think. I think that there is a context for that symbol. I don't okay. think there's a specific meaning for the symbol. Like, I don't think that the symbol means one thing and only one thing. I think it can mean things. It informs the story and it informs the idea of the story and it informs our, our imaginative experience with the story because of the context in which it is presented. So the good author takes an image and he, he or she, in the case of what you're describing there, she obviously, in the case of the dog, it's a he, that author uh, offers us a image within a context that then a, provides the context in which our imagination works, in which the imagination um, uh, builds on echoes and finds relationships and the, and begins the process of interpretation. I think that the problem is when I actually think, well, I'll stop there. What do you think of that? I think that's true. Yeah, I agree. That, with am that I completely. making too fine of a distinction no, there? Maybe we should have I came arbitrate. <laughs> No, I think that's an important <laughs> distinction because like you said, if you go in it with, without putting it in context, then I think what I was saying is that, because I would say the same thing about the dog here. Mm -hmm. So I think we probably sure. actually completely agree. Yeah, probably a matter of semantics. Uh, yeah, but your point about say, expressing things correctly is really important, be especially when there's multiple meanings or multiple ways people think about it. So um, well, this is important though. Like if you're, if you're the artist itself, the way you think about these two, the way, this distinction is important, right? Right. Like if I'm writing a poem or I'm writing a short story or I'm crafting a, making a film or writing a play or whatever it is. Um, if I'm trying, if I'm setting out to, to make some symbol mean something very specific, then am I not, I'm, I'm limiting the, I would argue that you're limiting the capacity for the work to 
um, work to do something, to not be just some, to mean something. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. To do something. Whereas if I'm, if I'm creating uh, an image that is free to, to work within a context, then I'm, then I'm saying to, to the, to the reader um, or to the person who's watching my movie or whatever it is, I'm saying that you are a participant in this and I'm a participant in it, participant in this. And what we are having here is a relationship and mm-hmm. you, what you are bringing to this relationship is me, is meaningful as much as what I'm bringing. I'm creating a context for it to happen and I'm offering an image as part of the discussion. But what you, what you're going to bring to that is, is going to be meaningful. If I'm just saying that this is just a symbol that means one thing, then the only way that I can get to that symbol as a reader or you can get to the symbol as a reader is to to have that connection already made. If I believe that the image that I'm creating is symbolic of some of some one specific thing, then then you can only get to that if you already know if you've already made that connection ahead of time. Mm. Yeah, Does that make sense? I completely agree with that, a hundred percent. And that's the danger that many literary critics make or readers is they say this means this one thing, and I'm closed off to any other kind of interaction with the text and then you're that's an imposition upon the text speaking of impositions and speaking of closing off tim no (laughs) i turn to you i am i am absorbing this and i am i cannot tell you like this conversation that we're having is almost like the conversation of hermeneutics and symbolism and meaning in the 20th century. Like we're in the thick of it. So if you don't, if you (laughs) like readers that don't have a background in 20 and 21st century philosophy, like what we're discussing, um, all of these things are touched on by the headiest philosophers of the last hundred years. Of course people can do it better than we can. (laughs) Oh no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm I'm just saying this is a lot to, I was listening because I'm thinking, Oh, there's, there's Gautamer in the conversation. Oh, there's Wittgenstein in the conversation. And so I'm kind of, I was tracking you guys. Um, I think it, it might be helpful to kind of step back for a second and talk about how a thing, you guys address this, but it might be helpful to be clear about Mm -hmm. Um, how meaning functions. And for me, I think one of the moments in my life that the lights really turned on is when I started understanding that things mean that particular individual symbols are recognized as meaningful and we can, we can attribute, um, hopefully, truthfully, uh, meaning to individual symbols once we understand the context of that symbol is within or that word is within. Mm-hmm. So what that says is meaning is contextual. Sure. So let me think, I'm trying to think of, and of an course, example. It, while you're thinking, so of course what I said is, I mean, what I said, my contention there that you, that, that, um, you know, you'd have to know what the symbol is already. You'd have to have a context and understanding of that, a definition of it to yeah. understand that the symbol means this thing. I mean, that's that in that argument. People have some people would say that that's fine and that that's what the study of literature is. It, the study of literature is to give readers a set of of meanings or definitions or whatever it is, so that they can understand what all these symbols are. 
right? And so that's where if you, and, right. and that's why the literary scholar under uh, from that perspective is the most important figure, right? That you identify yeah. archetypes and symbols and images and all these things, and then that's you, you enable other people to read because you know those things, right? Yeah. And so that's one that way is- of that's one way of approaching literary studies. And I'm not trying to say that that's wrong. Um, I'm just saying that well. I'm not, I kind of am trying to say this wrong, actually. I was going to say, <laughs> but, none of us hold that view in this conversation. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm so so that I, is part but of it. I would, yeah, that is part of it. I would I'm acknowledge, and I think we would all acknowledge that the history of symbols um, has an impact on the modern use of symbols. So, mm-hmm. uh, I just finished reading the Odyssey again with my students in the symbol of the loom. And Penelope's right. relationship. Uh, by the finished, loom. I assume you just started over again, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the symbol of the loom is. It seems like it's really bound up in um, the Greek vision of womanhood, of home, of hearth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if we read something about the loom in Western literature, at least today, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. know the Odyssey then we are, we are going to import that meaning, rightly or wrongly, into the thing that we're reading. And, but does a loom mean right. home and hearth and, and, and right. womanhood and like the Greek vision of womanhood? Does it necessarily mean that? Well, independent of a context, sure. no, it does not. In the Odyssey, very plainly it does. But if you import loom and you put it in a a science fiction story, um, if that science fiction story is not making some sort of allusion to the loom as home and hearth and womanhood, then I'm not, then, then I think that the meaning of the loom is not such. Right. Right. But then again, Tim, to your, to your point, and again, this is just another aspect of this ongoing conversation in philosophy and literature and uh, theology over all of culture since the beginning of time is there something and is there something inherently within a loom that actually does connect to the idea of weaving right um, and of weaving culture and of weaving language and of weaving meaning if someone were to look at it that became the symbol for a reason right it's not just Mm -hmm. sure but it's not because of literature that that thing became a symbol for that it's because of like ontology (laughs) Right. But like what that, the thing actually does. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think in even better, even better than the dog to bring this back to the power and the glory, even better than the dog is that just, I, I'm sure our readers will recognize what I'm about to say right now, because this image gets so burned in your mind when you read this novel, mm-hmm. that image of him laying that of the mother who cannot speak to him, laying her dead child at the foot of these primitive crosses on the mm-hmm. side of a mountain in a storm, right? Like there are so many, so there's symbols upon symbols upon symbols in that scene. And just that image mm-hmm. of death being laid at a cross, but not a cross that you would find in a church because now we're stripping away the priests, uh, for the priest and for the reader, like everything but death and love, is so, in, right? So are we, can, is there a yeah. difference between an image and a symbol? No, that was a great question. Because that, because that might be, that might be, you know, one of those questions of definition that get us to the core of where we perhaps agree 
um, most essentially. Can I, I found this passage from the Mary Oliver book, and I think it might inform what we're kind of talking about here. Because she's like I said, do you mind if I read it real quick? Yeah. Yeah. So she's talking about, I, I was right. She's talking about stopping by the woods on a snowy evening, the, the famous frost poem. So she says, she's just been talking about Milton, actually. Um, she's talking about the idea of figure in verse. But she says, it is possible, of course, to write a poem without figurative language. And yet, what is poetry but through whatever particular instance seems believably to be occurring, a meditation upon something more general and more profound? Frost's poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy, snowy Evening, has no metaphor or simile, no figure. It is no more than precise and very lovely description. And yet, the poem is surely about more than a simple pause before a winter forest. The whole poem, in fact, is a figure. The mm -hmm. traveler is talking about both a particular journey and about all the miles still to be traveled, which are life itself. The traveler's hesitation before the allurement of the deep dark with its suggestion of rest is surely the longing of a wearied and uncertain spirit. The promises are the responsibilities we either meet or fail. Perhaps Frost made no use of a single figure so that the transcendence of the 16 lines might more easily be accomplished, that we might savor the entire figure more fully. In any case, there is no mistaking the poem's transcendence from a particular musing and rather melancholy instance to a prof more profound level of a life decision. So my question, end quote, so my question then is, is something like that an image or a symbol? And is there, is there a difference there? Are, mm. they, are they the same thing? Is, is, is a, does a symbol, in my mind, I think, and I'll just, since I'm talking, I'll just keep talking. <laughs> um, my, my, in my mind, the, a symbol creates a degree of expectation. It's huh. that there is some sort of very specific echo or specific definition um, that I'm expecting the reader to connect to an image whereas an image is perhaps um less defined would you agree with that that initial definition say yes. it one more time david well that a symbol is there's something there's some kind of specific can i don't exactly know exactly how i said it but um there's something specific some sort of specific expectation that an author has that a symbol um is going to be connected yeah. to right maybe yes. it, i mean it was a symbol an image with a specific con with a specific right. connection you're wanting the author to make or reader with to an make emotional or philosophical weight right like some kind of or even just intellectual right yeah yeah even intellectual sure. tim what, what do you think about that is that too fine a point no no i think it's a very important point because I, I think Heidi is saying something very similar that, um, yeah, but it's more fun if we make it seem like it's a disagreement, <laughs> <laughs> but the, li the lived, it's kind of like, I think what I hear both Mary Oliver and Heidi saying, and you're saying it also, David, is that there's something about lived experience that precedes, um, gosh, yeah, I'm going to say it precedes symbol. So, Everyone who has experienced looking into a dark wood on a snowing, snowy evening, um, there is a, there is, I'm not going to say everybody, but there is oftentimes because of our lived experience, there's this feeling that I am moving into tranquility. I am moving toward peace. Maybe I'm moving toward rest. 
and that picture, I don't think that Frost was thought, um, what symbol can I conjure up that will represent peace and tranquility? I think he thought, what experience have I had that makes me feel like I'm moving into peace? Again, maybe I'm making too fine of a distinction here, but I think that um, that kind of shared, lived human experience. I don't know how to say this. Let me try to say it a different way. Um, a child that um, even before the child can, can speak and use words, if the child has a loving mother, will associate the mother's smile with all sorts of things because of the experience of having a mother pick up the baby and smile at the child. It means I am secure. It means I am warm. It means I will be fed. It means all of these different things. And so the mother's, it's tempting to say that the mother's face is a symbol, but I think what it is, it's more of a, an image that most of us have um, an experience associated with that that we carry throughout throughout our lives. Hmm. Yeah, and and thus, well, and and, and then also culture the cultures hold right throughout the life of the culture. Yes, right. And like culture, right. In some ways, cultures are defined by by those kind of things, right? Right. So I pulled up, and um, sometimes, and I think sometimes those cultures, um, they kind of solidify some of those experiences into symbols, like the loom. Right. Mm -hmm. yes. Right. Right. So I pulled. Did you guys? Do you guys know about Ed Hirsch's Edward Hirsch's book, A Poet's Glossary? No. No. I know it, who he is, but I don't know that book. So it's a very long. 700 plus pages and it's basically explorations of things that we talk about when we talk about poetry cool. so I, just out of curiosity i looked up his were his definitions of symbol and his definition of image um would you should i read those yes <laughs> yeah <please>. okay <laughs> so when he talks about image that'd be so, awesome if you didn't you're like yeah, so, so now i a, know there's a thing that exists i read about them i like them <laughs> You should go get the book and look them up. Um, and <laughs> so he, he does make a distinction, which is useful for what it's worth, between image and imagery, and then be, between those things and then imagination, between images, imaginism and imagism, the movements. So if you, um, so those are, you know, I think we could dive into that more fully if we wanted to. But he says the image which Wyndham Lewis calls the primary pigment of poetry, relates mm -hmm. to the visual content of language. It speaks to our capacity to embody meaning through words. The Princeton Encyclopedia of, Poeti of Poetry and Poetics from 1993 defines the image as, quote, the reproduction in the mind of a sensation produced by the physical perception, end quote. Clint and that's, that's the definition of what, David? Image, image. image. Okay, perfect. Wow. I mean, like, that yeah, feels like serendipity. So yeah. then, and then he says, Clent Brooks and Robert Penn Warren define it in Understanding Poetry from 1938 as, quote, the representation in poetry of any sense experience, end quote. Whereas another handbook characterizes it as a, quote, a mental picture evoked by the use of metaphors, similes, and other figures of speech, end quote. These are then the two bases for its definition. 
one, the image is sensuous, sensuous, as in I give you my sprig of lilac. The image is figurative, as in the star, the star my departing comrade holds and detains me. Hmm. Um, the literal literally bubbles over into the symbolic in Walt Whitman's When Lilacs Last in the door, Dooryard Bloomed, where he writes, all over, all over bouquets of roses. Oh, death, I cover you with roses and early lilies. Anyway, so he goes on about that. The poetic image is always delivered to us through words. Poetry engages our capacity to make mental images, but it also taps a place in our minds that has little to do with direct physical perceptions. And he goes on a little bit, talks about the different movements tied to this. Then he talks about the symbol. He says, the word symbol derives from the Greek verb symbolane, and I don't really remember enough Greek to remember exactly how to pronounce that. I took all my Greek classes at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> so I remember nothing. Uh, meaning, meaning, quote, to put together, end quote, and the noun symbolon, meaning mark, emblem, token, or sign. In the classical world, this is really interesting, I think. In the classical world, the symbolon was a half coin or half of a knuckle bone carried by one person as a token of identity or a mark of obligation to someone holding the other half. It was a sign of agreement, a concrete object that represented a pledge. Each represented a whole. And when the two halves were rejoined, they composed one knuckle bone, a complete... Cool! Wow! Broadly... Yeah, broadly speaking, a symbol is anything that signifies or stands for something else. Dr. Johnson defines it as, quote, that which comprehends in its figure a representation of something else. Thus, a dove is both a graceful bird and a universal symbol of peace. A rose is both a literal flower, a rose is a rose is a rose, Gertrude Stein reminds us in a famous tautology, and the most commonly used floral symbol in the West. It is the paragon of flowers in Western tradition, as one dictionary of symbols explains. Words are arbitrary symbols of meaning, but they also they are also textured entities. Specific mm-hmm. words are symbols that go beyond the literal. In poetry, it is critical to remember that rose is, first of all, a one-syllable, four-letter noun with a specific sound that ovals the <laughs> mouth when you say it aloud. It has an acoustic <laughs> impact as when Wordsworth seals it as a rhyme in his Imitations from 1807. Mm-hmm. Um, the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics summarizes that in literary usage, a symbol refers to, quote, a manner of representation in which what is shown means, by virtue of association, something more or something else. Right. Anyway. That's boy, that That's that seems to jive so, at least I heard that jive so cleanly with what we were talking about, that, yeah, that... that your Hirsch's definition of an image and of a symbol, I think it, I'm tracking right with them. I concur. I think that's right on. Well, and I also noticed right away how great it is to be a Christian. And again, to bring that back to the power and the glory, because both the <laughs> dove and the rose have very have symbolic Christian meanings as well that are not addressed in that poetic glossary. And I think that's what we find in the power and the glory is how layered these symbols are within the texture of the work itself. Which, which goes back to the idea of ontology, right? Like the rose means something symbolically to a lot of people because it is something inherently. Yeah. Wasn't that thing inherently that it would not take on the symbolic weight that it does for entire cultures of people. Right. Right. 
Right. And that's why the first thing we have to do, and the first thing the first thing we have to do as readers is identify what the thing is inherently that we're seeing. What is yes. it making us? What is the what is the author asking us to see? Right. And hear. Right. And then and thus the, the other the dog. Yes. What we see with the dog is plainly in the narrative it fits. It's it, it is a hungry desperate animal um and it's easy for us to associate it with the priest who's been in that who's in that exact same situation right so it's not like the the dog is a symbol of um the wishy priest maybe he is but it's more just a mirror of this is where the priest is also right and it's not because dogs wounded dogs are some universal symbol of something although they probably are it's because it is it is a wounded dog. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? Like when we oh, see, oh yeah. When we see when we look at the thing that is there, it echoes the other thing that is also there. <laughs> right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. echo something like uh, that we can't understand. And that's why the, when we teach literature, we sh- I don't think we should rush into identifying symbols and archetypes. We should rush into well, we actually shouldn't rush at all. We should slowly <laughs> linger in in, in, in the thing that is there in front of us. And that will then right. take us. That is the path to learn to, to, uh, that is the path to the echo, right? I the absolutely yeah. want to stand up and cheer for that because if you go right to the archetypes and the symbols, you lose the emotional weight of the particular thing, right? Like right. let us weep for the dead right. child before we start asking, what does the child represent? Because right. that brings us out of the emotional weight of it. And I think we need to be there. Mm-hmm. It's not. It can't be universal until it's particular first. Absolutely. The, something is universal because it is particularly meaningful to a lot of people. Yes. Yes. Should we? Uh, you know, I think that this, um, the conversation that we're having is. I can't help but think of, its its import kind of in like broader social discussions. Um, it is a scary thing when to have meaning rapidly uh, applied on like a social political level. So um, when our president, you know, like when, when our president does X to attribute his like meaning behind X and to say, I know that what he meant when he did X is Y. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am I am very guilty of that. Um, when I when there's a president I don't like that's in power, I find myself just kind of just doing that because I have like a certain level of distrust, and so I'm looking for kind of like these sort of base motives or whatever. Um, so I'm not saying that I am innocent of that at all. But I do think it's it's really wise to try <laughs> to try to approach with curiosity rather than like a, a kind of an expectation, a preformed expectation. I think it's a good rule as a reader. It's a good rule as a citizen. I think it's a really good rule as a partner, as a spouse, as a friend. If you approach what your partner is saying, what your spouse is saying with curiosity, well, that tends to lead toward like, to keep a connection. It keeps the connection. Whereas 
when your spouse is saying, um, I think we need to, uh, do X on Saturday. When you, when you attribute a meaning or a motive behind that, instead of approaching with curiosity or something like that. Yeah. I think it tends to lead toward, um, like rigidity and oh, no, I'm, I'm saying yeah. if you, if you are attributing something, if there's something that's up for grabs, if the meaning behind the statement is up for grabs and you attribute a meaning to it, instead of asking in curiosity for right. what your partner means. Yeah. I think it leads to a sort of, um, it doesn't lead to connection. Right. 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 So maybe as I've been thinking about this and to add on to what you're saying, Tim, maybe there are some symbols in literature that by authorial intent or the context or whatever reason there can be multiple reasons are broader that opens up a can of yes, words i know i know i just did i'm really sorry for what i said wait wait i want to i want to hear the rest of the thought yeah, but yeah. That, can by definition be broader have more layers of meaning versus one that is intended or in the context to have a more narrow meaning do you think that's true or no can you say that one more time? Okay. I'm thinking dog think with I'm, broken back. I don't back. think I'm smart enough to keep up with it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to have to use it. I'm going to have to give a particular Can you dumb example. it down for me? Yes. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> David, smartest guy in the world. So um, sometimes a symbol really has a narrow, one symbol might have a narrower meaning than another. For example, again, oh, we're right, talking, right. right? So like the, the dove or the rose versus the PhD broken leg or wooden leg. Right? right. There are there and or or pick a different example if you want to. But there are some times which within the context, the symbol, in order to understand the work of literature or poem properly, may have a more narrow meaning. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that that's yes. Yeah. I don't think I yes. do actually. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. You don't, don't agree, David? Well, I mean, okay. I'm gonna be kind of a kind of annoying again that's not I, annoying this is what a I, conversation is <laughs> i don't it's not that i disagree but i don't think that it's that they have a narrow a ne- you said narrow meaning i did right? say narrow meaning and yes. i i what I do don't, you think i should have said was that the wrong word do you think i think i don't think i don't think it's meaning i think we're talking about usage though aren't we like huh. th- that there's there's a, we use it in a narrow fashion because of the way the culture begin, the culture has, I don't want to say appropriated, but I'm going to, um, has appropriated or, or come to understand collectively. Right. It's, it's not that it means something more narrow. It's that it, it's that our collective understanding has, has begun to use it in a specific narrow way that helps us collectively come together and express a specific, that express that image, the meaning of that image in a specific way. Um, because I don't think that it limits the potential meanings of the image. Like you could use the image far, you could use, I mean, now on the other hand, if enough people, I might disagree with, I might be disagreeing with myself now, or I might be convincing myself that I'm wrong. <laughs> on the other hand, if enough people have begun to see an image as a specific thing and I use it without understanding that they're going to ex- have certain expectations about it, then I'm being either, um, ignorant or uncharitable. So, um, but I think that there is at least theoretically a way in which the, 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 the image itself can mean more than what we're limiting it to. Like if, if theoretically it goes beyond 
the collective consciousness, the collective the collective definition of that image. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, but I'm not. I don't know that it convinced me. Yeah, I, mean, like I, I said, I don't yeah, think I convinced right. my mind. I just changed my mind halfway right. through this. <laughs> Maybe but I could I'm throw like, sure. like a little yeah, a, a mental um, experiment. Let's imagine that, um, and let's imagine this is a story that we're talking about. And in the story, um, a father has died. The father is in the coffin, and at the funeral, the son comes and lays a piece, a piece of unchiseled bark upon the coffin lid okay now let's imagine an alternative in which the sun comes and lays a chiseled crucifix on the coffin lid right i don't think i think if we can hear the rest of the story we could hear why the unchiseled piece of bark meant something between son and father but i think that we can probably safely assume something about what the son meant when he laid a crucifix on his father's coffin. Now, is that is the meaning of that crucifix crucifix? Does it mean something independent of the broader story? No, I don't think so. Cause it mean, it may mean something completely different than what a Christian would typically associate with that given the context of the story. However, that, that, crisp historical meaning of the crucifix has, I think, greater specificity in meaning than does an unchiseled piece of bark. Right. doesn't mean the unchiseled piece of bark is without meaning. It just means that we need more of the story to understand what that meaning is. Right. Mm. Right. Right. I think that is kind of what I was getting at, which could be what you are getting at, David, when you're talking about usage within the societal context. I just tend to be so ontological that well, I no, uh, lost so, in that a little bit. Yeah. And I think that we're after the same thing. I think my point right. is just that, I mean, I was trying to be ontological to your <laughs> too, because what I'm saying is that like a rose, like if a rose, the rose has become a symbol for something, um, but it doesn't have to only mean the thing that we've collectively the things that we have sort of collectively assumed that it means, right. Or decided. Right. That agree. It totally also, agree. It can also, yes. we, it can be used in pursuit of other ideas as well. Right. Right. And that's like, that's where, I mean, that's one of the things that poetry does over time is right. it, it evolve. It doesn't, well, it doesn't evolve meanings, but it, 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 adds, widens. Like it adds layers yeah. and layers. And that yeah. happens in the power and glory all the time. And that that's the fun of literature. I think that's the, like what's so fun about for our listeners and for us when we read these books and we find the priest you know, heading up the side of a mountain and encountering these primitive crosses and what that represents to, to him in this moment of death, right? It's just so profound. And that I think to your point about symbols, that is the fun and of grappling with literature and poetry. Um, I know yes. Tim's got to go here in uh -huh. a second. One of the things yeah. that I love about Tim, one of the things I love about you, Tim, I'm not going to talk about you like you're in the third person, um, is that in a lot of your, <laughs> a lot of your talks about teaching uh, in particular, you talk about this idea of like connection and like that the classroom is a place for things like that, um, for for relationships mm -hmm. and how important that is and how we should be in pursuit of positive relationships with our students. One of the things that drives me crazy about a lot of literature, you know, and I'll 
throw people like James Joyce under the bus here and perhaps even Ezra Pound to some degree. And even someone who I love, like William Carlos Williams, I'm always kind of um, fighting with my, within myself about this, is that some writers are in pursuit of a sort of union with their reader, um, hmm. where, where uh, their, their huh. usage of image and symbolism and all that is in pursuit of sort of a common, a common understanding, a common experience. Um, and then there's some people who it seems like they're in like they're in pursuit of sort of disconnection. I don't know what another word off the top of my head to use in that. Like they're not in pursuit of sort of a union. They're it's like they're they're there specifically to confuse the reader. And I don't think that that's actually true. I'm so I'm, I don't know what right. the actual word is, but I love the way that you pursue that 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 union in the in the way that you talk about literature. Um, and I and I think that there is something like I think that the the poets that will the poets and the authors that last the longest are the ones who are in sort of pursuit of a common, a common um, language, a common understanding, a common ground with their, a common relationship yeah. with, with their right. audience. Yeah. Hmm. Man, that is so There's important no to me <laughs> and it's reasons why it, it, that's one of the reasons that I do my absolute best to not read any sort of commentaries about the works that we read because I think that David, you've chosen authors that are really good at this, that are really good at finding and appealing to common experience rather than just, um, what I would call sentimentalism, just Mm -hmm. kind of an appeal to previously established, um, meanings that right. their readers will already kind of like have conjoined to. Boy, I just feel like the authors that we read are, are kind of adamant about finding with their readers a shared common experience rather than kind of resorting to, yeah, what I call sentimentalism. Kind of like right. it's, it's a little bit cheap, and it, which is not to say that Graham Greene and that Flannery O'Connor don't appeal to symbols, shared symbols with their audience. They absolutely do. But it does seem to me like the um, kind of lived experience, like ontology is where they begin. Lived Mm -hmm. experience is where they begin. Symbolism is embedded within that lived experience. Mm. Yeah, the symbolism is in service of expressing. That's a better way of saying it. As opposed yeah. to symbolism yeah. as being the the point, right? Yeah, that's just cleverness, right? <laughs> right. Heidi, any, any but I mean, no. just to to be real clear about the sort of um, authors that are not on close reads for a reason. I don't know that you guys remember Frank Peretti from maybe the eighties <laughs> and the nineties. Um, wildly popular. Careful. Well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm like, I gotta go to bat this like wildly popular among christian readership in i think the 80s and 90s but i would say that he does sort of appeal to kind of like prepackaged narratives and prepackaged symbols that his readers already understand um and i think he appeals to those kind of prepackaged goods well, rather is- than cooking for himself but what and is cooking for his audience? Isn't so this man, this is this gets this gets into some really interesting water. We don't have time to pursue because you've got like 30 seconds. But what's the yeah. difference between like genre good so like what takes something from being 
prepackaged genre fiction that takes on prepackaged characteristics and then genre fiction which plays with prepackaged characteristics like where it is what's, where the, it is, what's the difference yeah like i mean what how do you know well i guess yeah how you kind of know when you know but um you like that's kind of what genre fiction or film or whatever is right there's something prepackaged about it that 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 has created certain expectations or a certain world or a certain way of thinking about the world right it is that 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 creates a framework for what you're doing yeah but the best well goes beyond the prepackaging right absolutely and so there's there's a difference between genre that i think that every story that we love every story that we've read on close reads that we adore appeals to a genre sometimes they tinker with a genre sometimes they stick with it um faithfully there's a difference between that and using the genre and having a sort of like prepackaged narrative that you know when you play this narrative the mean father is going to belittle his son in front of his mother um or or uh gosh i'm just trying to think of all like the frank peretti sort of examples i'm i'm just going for using I i guess those things aren't even archetypes right those are like just bad tropes yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just bad tropes, just prepackaged tropes. We already know what this means by the time we finish the first paragraph. Okay, but help me out here, because so you know that I love crime fiction, I love spy fiction, right? So this is pure genre. But, and a lot of them have this sort of like this. You look at like I don't know, seven like nineteen forties noir type crime fiction. You've got this like hard boiled detective scenario and all that. So there are things that are consistent throughout them that kind of make the genre what it is. You have the. Um, yeah, you, you look at Western fiction or science fiction. A lot of these have very specific patterns that are repeated um, across the genre. But what? How do you? What takes it from that from being from sort of just generic genre fiction to something more transcendent? What gets it to that point? At a minimum, I mean, we could do a whole episode on this. I think yeah. at a minimum, um, yeah, you have thirty seconds. <laughs> a, there's a complexity that you see in John Le Carre's novels which are in some ways just by the board spy novels. Mm-hmm. There's a complexity there that you don't find, a complexity especially in characters' motives that you don't find in the kind of standard pot boiler spy novel. Right. Hmm. So it's the fact that the, there's, <laughs> Yeah, they're people, right, right. And obviously, there, I mean, you both would say there's a lot more to it than that, but I think that's to me the first thing that shows up in a John Le Carre novel is like, oh my gosh, these characters, both good and bad, are so much like real people. They are so complex, having good motives and bad motives, and yeah. he's not afraid to show both of them. Yeah, there's a, right. there's a particularity about their humanness. Yeah, well, and a mastery of language from the author. So, for example, we both, we, everybody's, we've talked about Shakespeare. So Shakespeare's plays that follow the Elizabethan tropes in many ways are just as good as the ones that are subversive, right? So because of the underlying contemplation of transcendence, which you guys talked about, the character development, and then also just the mastery of language. I'm reading Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy right now. It's take I'm, I am a fast reader and it's taken me over a month to read it because I'm just mesmerized by the language. Also, you, you, let's be honest, you have no idea what's going on. I do. I got it. I have, <laughs> I have, I'm figuring this <laughs> really, I want to say it's where word right now. It is hard. Yeah, it's it a hard, is a hard. 
but I'm, I'm there, but I did turn to Scott the other day and say, I have no idea what's going on and had to go back like two chapters. And, but a lot of it is because the language is masterful. He owns it. So I think that's another aspect of it. Frank Peretti's writing just isn't that good. (laughs) And with that, we're done. Yep. (laughs) Um, Hey, Tim, I'll let you go. I know you got to (laughs) go. I do have to go, you guys. Yeah. Oh, I will say for everyone who's listening, like, why don't you talk about TTYL? We definitely (laughs) did talk about this book. Um, And some of the things like the, like, well, but think about it. Some of the things that we talked about that we're going to talk about the end of the book and things that happen in this are best reflected on when you know more. So that's absolutely right. That's true. Let's go a little bit because and get into some you know, more general literature. Yeah, exactly. Because some of the things that we want to talk about here are best talked about like in a Q and a episode or on next week's, the next couple of weeks. So, um, so that's, you Hey know, man, I'll talk to you guys later. Forward. Yep. See you Hi, later. Tim. Hi, did you have Bye. any final thoughts? I do not have any final thoughts except that I'm trying to figure out the genre thing. So I'm really thinking about that right now. <laughs> I think you, I think we did identify three things. I mean, one is it's got real people who embody something per- very particular that gets at the universal. Um, the, the value of uh, well-written, you know, le- language crafting mm-hmm. is what sets it apart. And then also it's getting at something tr- transcendent. And those two things probably add up together to what gets at something transcendent. Um, Agreed. And I'm, we're going to talk, we're going to do a Le Carre uh, novel in the yeah, spring I'm so about that. i'm super excited about and i've that. got mounds and mounds of spy and, and western and uh crime fiction novels we can do over time and get into some fun genre stuff um before i let you go i just want to remind everybody um about the forma website we've got lots of good content up there today's halloween and we, this is uh we've decided to post a bunch of uh, crime mystery, crime and mystery story content this week. So with uh, Heidi, you wrote about uh, justice in the stories of Hercule Poirot, um, mm-hmm. John Wilson, the former editor of books and culture, who is now a editor with uh, the Inglewood review of books. He wrote a piece for us, which is going up today about the best of crime fiction over the last hundred years. I'm going to be, we're going to have a podcast interview up on the former feed about uh, crime fiction and mystery fiction in the 20th century. So there's lots of good content on that. And if you like that sort of content, don't forget to subscribe. Um, we have the form of subscription. We're going to be releasing uh, four issues of that quarterly, plus some bonus content for subscribers. It's going to go out weekly via email. It's $39 a year, or if you're so inclined, $4 a month, which is like the cost of like a latte at Starbucks. So think about it that way and then go subscribe. You can head over to formajournal.com to learn more about that. And it is almost Christmas time. And we do have gifts, gift subscriptions. So if you have a colleague or a family member or a spouse or a child or a parent or are there other things in the world? <laughs> friend? Did you say friend? Uh, I, yeah, Inquiry. I think I said friend. A or acquaintance. An obligation. A, a secret Santa. Yes. Yeah, a secret Santa. There you go. <laughs> a local politician. I don't know. Whatever it would be. Um then you can also get a gift subscription for for people. Um, so just wanted to remind people of that. Um, that goes a long way to helping us create good content. And these magazines are going to be great. Uh, Heidi's our deputy editor on that. So she's been helping out a lot. And we've got a really good team now. Um, it's not just Graham and doing something mediocre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so we're excited. So um, hope you, that you will uh, subscribe to that. Um, of course, we always value your support. 
um, on Patreon for this show and the network. If you've been listening to The Plays the Thing and Close Reads and The Daily Poem, and you're excited about our movie show coming up and a bunch of the other content we have coming, we would certainly appreciate your financial support over on Patreon. But perhaps the best way that you can help us is to make sure that you are subscribed to the feeds, that you are leaving star reviews and you're leaving written reviews. Those help us a lot in terms of spreading the word and generating audience. And that helps us a lot in terms of being able to keep doing these things. So if you uh, have found some value in this network and in the shows that we're doing, then please do um, those three things. That's it. Thanks for listening. Um, We will talk more specifically about the book instead of so generally about literature. Um, I promise next week. Um, But hopefully you enjoyed this this conversation as much as Heidi and Tim and I seem to have. (laughs) I enjoyed that. Did you enjoy that? I loved it. I thought okay. that, in fact, I just want to keep talking about it, but <laughs> well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do that without Tim. <laughs> Sounds uh, good. <laughs> but for Tim and for Heidi and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute and the Close Reads Network, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening and happy reading. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.